Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good afternoon and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about the annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. Well, our guest today, our first guest, is a returning friend of Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. His name is Dr. Mario Martinez. He's a clinical neuropsychologist who lectures worldwide on the impact of cultural beliefs on health and longevity. His unique approach bridges the fields of psychoneuroimmunology, cultural anthropology, and cultural neuroscience. In 1998, he developed his theory of biocognitive science based on research that demonstrates how thoughts and their biological expression co-emerge within a cultural history. Biocognitive theory integrates research in psychoneuroimmunology, neuroscience, and cultural anthropology to conceptualize and address the causes of health, the learning of illness, and the biocultural ingredients of longevity as integral bioinformational fields that cannot be reduced to their cognitive, biological, or cultural components. In other words, it's all integrated. It all forms one uh, unified field that must be addressed if we're to talk about well-being on a mind, body, and emotional level. Dr. Martinez lives in Montevideo, Uruguay. He is the author of the novel, The Man from Autumn, and The Mind-Body Code, which is coming out any second. Good morning, Mario. Welcome back. Good morning. Thank you for having me back. Oh, my goodness. Happy to have you. And I probably should should also share with our listeners that I have taken your basic training with, with great enthusiasm. And, and, <laughs> <Yes>. I, <laughs> and, I, and I loved it. 
let's talk about uh, biocognition and just uh, break it down a little bit further for, for our listeners. Okay, uh, biocognition is a theory and practice that I developed in, in 1998 to bring together a few fields that were not communicating with each other. Uh, we pretty much know that the mind and the body communicate with each other, and that's very well established from psychoneuroimmunology and other sciences. But what's missing is what influences the mind, if the mind influences the body. And what I'm bringing in is culture. It's mind, body, in a cultural context. And culture is extremely important because we perceive culturally. We learn to see the world in a cultural way, and I'll explain that as we move along. So it's really mind, body, and culture bringing together psychoneuroimmunology, which studies how thoughts and emotions affect the immune, nervous, and endocrine system, bringing together cultural neuroscience, which looks at how the brain responds based on the cultural learning, and then the area of anthropology, especially very important anthropology, cultural anthropology, which actually looks at how we construct our world based on the cultural beliefs that, that we create and that we use as premises to understand ourselves and, and others. I think this is what makes uh, biocognition so unique, is it's bringing in um, the culture in which we were raised uh, that affects the mind, body, and emotions. In other words, that somebody who has been raised, let's say, in a, uh, a remote village in the Andes is going to require a different protocol uh, to work with whatever issues that present than somebody who is living in Montevideo or Los Angeles. Exactly, yes. And, and we have what I, what I call cultural editors, which are people, authorities that are giving power. They're given the power in a context. For example, every culture has it. And one uh, culture editor would be a doctor in a hospital, a teacher in a classroom, clergy in a temple or church, uh, parents at home. And, and those culture editors, we pay a lot of attention to them from the beginning, biologically and in every other way, because they were basically, at, in the beginning, they were extremely important for our existence. Uh, if your parents abandon you, you die when you're born. So we have a biological component that says there's something important about this person. And the first would be when you're hungry and you see the breast or you see a bottle, you, you don't know the words, but you see the symbols. And those symbols are assimilated biologically and cognitively, and then later you have a name for breast or the name for bottle or whatever, but those are important components that, that are built into the system because it's hard to say, uh, how can my thought affect my biology? Well, if you think of it after you're an adult, it's, very, it's a lot difficult, uh, more difficult to explain than if from day one you're born in a culture and you're born with the culture editors that shape your world. And then when something happens, when somebody says you're stupid, and we know now that when, when someone uh, shames you, uh, you are actually having uh, an inflammatory reaction. Or somebody says, I love you, uh, which causes other, like oxytocin and other types of hormones that, are, that actually are good for heart regulation, for uh, all kinds of things that drops blood pressure. So we're biosymbolic beings, is what I call it, biosymbolic. A symbol is not just a symbol. It's a biologically accepted and assimilated image that allows us to deal with the world. In your book, The Mind-Body Code, you offer practical training in, in this approach, which not only helps us overcome obstacles, but to live a more empowered life. Uh, what I've tried to do in the book is to, to not only come up with a revolutionary way of, of making change that lasts, 
but also paying attention to what people are looking for, for what the public is looking for. And what I see consistently in, in the reviews that people are saying that, there, that something is missing in a book, consistently they say, this is really very nice, I like it, it makes me feel good, but how do I apply it? How do I make this practical, all this theory and all these discoveries, how do I apply them to my life when I have a particular problem? And that's what I've paid a lot of attention to in the book. And every chapter, whatever the theory or the concept or the topic that I talk about, at the end of the chapter, they're practical exercises and practical applications to what you learn in the book. Otherwise, it sounds good and it feels good, but it doesn't really allow you to make sustainable change, which is really what I'm obsessed with. How can I help people change, but not only change but maintain the change, whether it's losing weight or whether it's a relationship or whatever it is. So the book addresses that very clearly. And then there's one chapter that doesn't have any um, any practical examples because that chapter is specifically devoted to the evidence, the scientific evidence of the things that I'm talking about because that's another thing that's important. You could be talking about something, but if it doesn't have any evidence-based uh, uh, information, then you could just be making it up. And it's not that we just have to rely on science all the time because science only measures things that they can understand, but that you do have to have some kind of basis, maybe some biological basis or, or some existential basis of what you're talking about so that you can have substance, so you can take it and run with it rather than just take it and not knowing where to go. So I have poetics, which is a way of explaining it in a, in a, in a way that, that entices, but every once in a while I'll stop and I say, okay, enough poetics. Let me give you what you can do with this. And I think that's the value of the book. It took me a year and a half to write it so I could really take the time and be very sensitive to what I thought the needs of, of the public are. And when we talk about the body's operating instructions or the operational system, this includes how we interpret the world, how we gain our sense of self, how we define what we believe to be possible for ourselves and what is possible. Uh, yes, because what, what we do is we, we create premises. And, and the reason I call it the, uh, the mind-body code is that the, the brain has one way of coding information, but it's, it's not like a computer. It's not a, 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 um, a system that, that just processes information. It's not that. But the brain has a code to make things relevant or not relevant. And that code is simply repetition. Whatever you repeat and repeat and repeat, the brain interprets it as something important, either for preservation, conservation, or significant. So anything that you repeat becomes relevant and becomes important. And in fact, you, you develop more um, neuromaps and, and neurotransmitters in whatever you're repeating. That's and, the first and, part. Hence the adage, uh, practice makes permanent. Yes, exactly. And, and, and imagine that you practice negativity and that you look at the world with the premise that the world, the world is negative, people are negative, they're out to get me. And you become an expert at identifying negativity. Well, what, what are you doing? You're creating neuromaps. You're creating neurotransmitter pathways that are set up for you to identify negativity in the world. That's, that's the code for the brain. The code for cognition is different. The code for cognition, although they're, they're one, it's like the ocean and the, and the waves, they have different characteristics, but, but they're inseparable. 
Well, what cognition does is whatever is repeated, cognition tries to make sense of it and tries to find evidence to confirm. So let's say, getting back to that example of the world is negative, and you repeat that and you become really good at selecting the negativity in the world. And when you find it, cognition says, okay, there's the evidence. The world is bad because I saw this and this and this. So 11,000 things happened that were good and you pick up two things that were bad. And it's a confirmation of a premise rather than a, an objective reality that where other people could see something else. So it's important to understand that because if just knowing that, you realize how you program yourself in, in, in a meaning way, not in a... In a computational way of looking at the world in one way or looking at it another but as I'm you know I'm going to need to jump in here Dr. Martinez yeah. I'm going to need to jump here because we do need to go to a break but when we come back we're going to carry on this important conversation with Dr. Mario Martinez to learn more about the mind body code and biocognition please visit www.biocognitive.com on Twitter at biocognitive1 and on Facebook the mind body code here come the tunes we'll be right back we know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you've just joined us now, we are talking about the mind-body code with Dr. Mario Martinez. And prior to the break, we were talking about how practice makes permanent with biocognition, how where we focus our energy and attention is where we find ourselves in our realities. So, Dr. Martinez, let's talk a little bit about using biocognition and the mind-body code to structure change. 
whether it's physical or emotional change in our lives. Perhaps even using a couple of examples in the case of addiction or trauma recovery or even um, managing obesity. Okay. Well, it's important be, before I, I talk about that, that it's important to note that it's not an intellectual process. If it were, you could say to somebody, you're killing yourself with smoking or with cocaine, and uh, the rational thing would be to say, okay, I'll stop. It doesn't work that way. Intellectual, it doesn't work. Reasoning doesn't work. It has to be embodied, and it has to be dealt with in a totally different way. So, for example, addictions. Addictions have nothing to do with drugs. Overweight or problems with uh, eating disorders has nothing to do with food. They are distractions from something deeper. Distractions with the uh, uh, cocaine or with the food. Distractions from looking at things that need to be looked at that cause a tremendous amount of anxiety. And of course, if you have a, if you you've been addicted to something, you're going to have a biochemical addiction and you're going to have withdrawals and all that. But it doesn't start that way. And it starts with you using whatever it is, and it may have some pleasure, it may not, but it allows you to distract yourself from something deeper. As you distract yourself, you become very good at distracting yourself. And what happens usually when you go to a a conventional uh, treatment center, they talk about your distraction. They talk about how much cocaine you've done or how much you've eaten, how much weight you've lost, and that adds to the distraction. What I do, and I've worked with thousands, literally thousands of, of, of problems with uh, uh, drug addictions of all kinds and uh, weight management. And what I do is I don't really care if they did one line or two line. That's really not uh, relevant. Uh, they know already what they're doing to their bodies. What I do is I teach them to identify what it is that happens when they don't do the distraction. So an example, let's use food. All right, food, what do I do with food? I teach people to love food. And the first thing they say is, well, I love food too much. No, you need food. You don't abuse what you love. You abuse what you need. So an example would be food becomes a distraction for anxiety, for boredom, for uh, sexual interest, for uh, social anxiety, anything. So food is no longer a nourishment. It's a distraction. So what do you do? You're going to eat. The first thing you do is you identify what is it that if I don't eat right now, what am I going to feel? And you're going to feel some anxiety. And that, that anxiety that you feel, what is it? Is it anxiety because you're bored? Is it anxiety because you're worried about something? Is it anxiety because you're not eating? And what do you do with anxiety? You do a relaxation response, whatever that is, meditation or whatever. And then you let it go. Next time you realize that you don't eat and the signal says, I'm bored. So I'm going to eat because I'm bored. All right, so what do you do? Instead of eating, you go to something that brings novelty to your life and so on. So the idea is to address the distraction, not what you're using to distract yourself. Mm-hmm. And it makes perfect sense that uh, when you start to view what ails us, whether it's anxiety, depression, drugs, uh, you know, being extremely overweight or even our, our, our traumas, let's say in the case of rape or war or these kinds of things, when we, when we place our focus and attention on ways that we can make ourselves feel better in the, in the presence, in the absence of these demons, if you will, and I'm putting air quotes around them as I speak, uh, we begin slowly but surely to diffuse that that response this is what i hear you saying yes as you as you learn that that the problem is not the drug or the food 
that the that what what you're doing is you're you're distracting yourself from something else. You're distracting yourself from having to feel the anxiety or having to feel whatever it is, the fear. As you learn to identify, then you can use the tools for fear or tools for anxiety. But if you don't, then you'll be addressing the food. I'm going to eat less today and I'm going to do better because I lost two pounds. Or I'm going to do better today because I only had one drink instead of uh, ten drinks. That's distracting yourself. That that's It's like if you're driving a car and you see the oil light going on and you put gas. It doesn't work. you got to look at the oil, not the gas. So you have to identify the signal. And when you identify the signal, then you use the tools needed for the signal. It makes perfect sense. Um, let's talk a little bit uh, about a couple of case studies that you, you can share with us. One case – this woman was uh, uh, morbidly obese. She weighed 320 pounds. And uh, we started working. And before working on anything, uh, of course, I don't work on losing weight because that's not what, what you do. But before working on anything, what you need to, what I worked on was self-esteem. If you don't work on self-esteem first, any change that you make will be sabotaged because you're not worthy of the good things that can happen to you. So for several months, we just worked on building self-esteem. She had been sexually abused, which is uh, frequently the case with, with some kind of a, uh, obsessive or, or ex- any behavior of excess. So we worked on that and we worked on the archetypal wounds and that, uh, as you know from the training that you've had, that we, have, we can be wounded three ways with either in any culture, and I call them archetypal because I see them in every culture. You could be shamed, you could be abandoned, or, or you could be betrayed. In her case, she had been shamed repeatedly by her father, by the abuse and so forth. We worked on that. As we worked on it and we began to address the issues, not intellectually but, but experientially, we, I began to see that she, she began to use food less than she did before because she could identify that she was actually moving away from having to feel the, the pain of the wounds then when she got to the level of self-esteem that we could work on it, then we started working on, all right, how do we manage your, your life rather than your food? How do we manage your life? And, and as we did that, she never told me how much she weighed. She never told me how much she ate. In fact, I taught her how to love food and how to really – I gave her some really good recipes. <laughs> uh, hmm. so, so she became a pretty good chef uh, in her own right. And, and as we were doing that indirectly – in an incidental way, she started losing the weight and she had developed, quote, diabetes type 2, which went away. Um, so that's an example of, of how you deal with it. Is it easy? No. And is it for everybody? No, because you first have to allow yourself to feel the good things that could happen in your life with, with training before you can do that. Some people are so committed to misery that they would rather die, literally, they would rather die than have to confront, as you said, their demons. Well, what I hear you saying is that the uh, the the previous operating system is so becomes so ingrained that that's where the challenge really lies is being willing to let go of that operating system and replace it with a newer one that is more self honoring that is uh, more healthy and that offers a greater opportunity. Yes, and and but it's as you said it's it's difficult because it's an operating system that has worked. For quite a while, even though you're in misery, you, you feel less anxiety and misery than in a discovery of something that could be joyful. So I'll give you an example. Let, let's say that you speak French and every time – and that's all you can speak French. And every time you speak French, 
you feel pain. Even though you feel pain, you're going to have to speak French because that's the only language you know. And then when somebody says, I'm going to teach you English, and with English, you're not going to feel pain. It's not easy. You see the, the analogy. It's very difficult to go into something new, even if it's good for you, because you don't have the tools. You don't, you're comfortable with the other, even though you're in misery. So even though you, you in, in, in the example, you, you have pain with French, as you're learning English, and it's not so much pain, you keep reverting back because that's what you know. Indeed, and it's the it's the the devil you do versus the devil you don't know, and that the suffering has become so familiar that it it can be challenging to imagine life without it. You know, who who would you be without that suffering? Exactly, and I take away a lot of those pathological labels of the person is doing this because they're masochistic. It's not that at all. It, it, it's just an, an an inefficiency, an effectiveness in a particular area. Uh, and the person needs tools. You could be you could be an Einstein, uh, and you try to hammer s- something with a with a screwdriver, and it's not going to work. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It, it, what matters is are you using the right tools for the right um, challenge. Indeed. Um, let's talk about aging consciousness because you work quite a bit with centenarians or have in the past. And this is fascinating about growing older and growing older gracefully and joyfully and with integrity. Yes, I've worked with, with, with centenarians that I've worked with, people who are 100 or over, are centenarians who are healthy. I'm not that interested in, 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 work, in trying to learn something from someone who's 104 uh, vegetating in a nursing home. That's not going to give me a lot of information. It's just going to give me that that person's been through time but not with quality time. So, so I look for centenarians all over the world in five different continents or from, from five different continents who actually are healthy or functioning well. And what I have found is that I can't teach them anything. They're constantly teaching me. They break away from the mold. They break away, for example, of the cultural portals. The cultural portals are uh, – our culture creates portals, um, adolescence, middle age, infancy – Third, uh, third age, uh, they don't have that. When you ask them what's middle age, they, they laugh at you and they say, middle age, I'll find out when I die. I don't know what middle age is. And when they ask them, uh, do, do you, um, do, are you worried because now you're older and you can't do things? And, and they'll say, what do you mean I can't do things? I, I just went back to college or I have a, I have a new garden. So they, they are the rebels in a very healthy way. They break away from the portals that culture creates and that's Mostly what ages people. You can Aging and growing older are different. Growing mm. older, all it takes is time. Aging is what you do with that time based on the cultural premises that you live, based on the belief system that you have because you'll give it attributions based and, on the culture. And we know that we can't believe everything that we think that because the mind is such a busy place – that if we really give credence to every single thought or even emotion that comes up on our radar, we stay stuck. Uh, of course. And, 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 and the important thing to remember is that whatever thoughts we have are from a, an operational consciousness that was, that was trained by, a, uh, by cultural premises. By, 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 we're very tribal. We, we learn in our tribes and the, things we, the thoughts we have are thoughts based on – on what we were taught. 
even even perceptually, you, you know, if if anyone's taken a, a, a high school course in psychology or or an introductory course in in, in college, they talked about the um, um, these optical illusions, uh, the Mueller Lear um, optical illusion, where you see two lines, one on top of the other, they're parallel and they're exactly the same length, but one of them ha- has arrows going in and the other one has arrows going out, or or the tails and the and the head of the arrows. Consistently, no matter how much you try, the one with the arrows out will look longer than the other one. And they mm-hmm. thought, okay, there we go. See, perception doesn't have anything to, to do with culture. We have certain things that are immutable. Well, that's true in the Western culture. You go to a, a tribe in Africa, in the Kalahara um, Desert, and these people, when you ask them which uh, line is longer, they say they're both the same. Because they learn the horizontality from the desert. They learn a different way of perceiving that doesn't allow them to have or uh, doesn't create the, the illusion that we have in, in, in other cultures. So everything is cultural. We have about 20 to 30 reflexes. Everything is culturally learned. Everything else. We are going to need to wrap up. We, we are out of time, and I would urge our listeners to change their perspective by visiting www.biocog.com cognitive.com once again that's biocognitive.com on twitter at biocognitive one and on facebook the mind body code once again the book is the mind body code and the author is dr mario martinez thanks for joining us mario love having you back thank you lisa my pleasure and, and congratulations on the work you do thank you have a great day and come back and see us next week i wanted to fight We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about the relationship between the mind, the body, and the emotions. And my next guest is Dr. Erin Olivo. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and has been an assistant clinical professor of medical psychology at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons since 2004. She is the former director of the Columbia Integrative Medicine Program, which she headed in collaboration with Dr. Mehmet Oz, 
Dr. Olivo lives in New York City, and she has written a book entitled Wise Mind Living, Master Your Emotions, Transform Your Life. Good morning, Dr. Olivo. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Can you describe what living in wise mind actually means? Sure. Um, so really, uh, wise mind living is sort of what I teach to all of my patients. Um, and it's fundamentally about living with balance and living a life where you're in charge, not your emotions. So I teach my patients um, a bunch of strategies, starting with being more mindful of what you're feeling um, and what you're thinking and what you're doing to really take charge of your life and, and how you feel in it. And, and what I love about what you've just said is the implication of a wise mind is that we possess internally the tools and resources to properly care for our lives and ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know that um, one of the things that you um, often say is happiness is a choice. And I um, probably say that almost every day, five or 10 times a day (laughs) to my patients where I'm really saying like, I I know that you often feel as if emotions just happen to you and that you don't have a choice about them, but you really do have a choice about how you feel. If you can be mindful of what's happening around you, what's triggering you, what you're thinking and doing about it, then you have a choice to to feel differently. You have a choice to do something all the time. And, And we do have that wisdom in ourselves if we can manage our emotions, calm down our emotions enough so that we can have access to that wisdom. So, and that's a lot about what the wise mind living strategies help people do. Would you say that emotions are a little bit like the weather? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) They they do go and, and, you know, just like with weather, you have to, you know, take a look outside and see it's raining and, oh, I need an umbrella today. So I'm going to need to do something to manage how I feel today. Um, So absolutely, I think of it just like that. And, you know, uh, when I say the weather, too, the the weather is kind of fickle. You know, that you know, in some climates, it can be sunny one minute and then there can be a storm that blows through the next and then the sun comes out again. And when we can help our clients see that emotions very much are like the weather or even the waves in the ocean, that they come and they go, and it's the value that we're assigning to those emotions is what can either help us or get us into trouble. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, another sort of way that that metaphor works really well is um, sort of this idea of I would never say that I am the weather, but a lot of people sort of really decide that because they feel something, then they are that and that it's solid and it's not um, transient or um, changeable or dynamic. Right. And that that really I, I am not my emotion. I am experiencing this emotion at this moment and therefore have the agency to be able to do something about it, right? So it is something that, that I can view as an object and that's really where mindfulness comes in of being more mindful and, and viewing our emotions as they rise and fall and come and go and sometimes come out of the blue for us. Um, but really to just pay attention to that and when we have that distance, that sort of observer stance of, oh, wow, that just really brought up a lot of sadness for me or, oh boy, there's shame, um, you know, that then we can actually 
begin to work with those emotions and do something about them. In your book, you discuss how we live in a culture that is very efficient at generating stresses and at the same time makes stress reduction seem like an urgent task at which we're all failing to measure up at. You know, it's like the goal is reduce stress, reduce stress. And yes, the ideal perfect world is there's healthy stress that exists and we reduce all negative stress. But there's a process to it. We don't just wake up and say we're going to live a stress-free life. Right. We, and, and I think actually when we're talking about stress, in some ways we're, um, we're doing a disservice by just calling it stress as if, you know, that's this one size fits all um, general term. Because I actually think that part of why, you know, everyone's, you know, manage your stress, manage your stress in five seconds, and here's a way to do that, and here's a way to do The reason that people are still feeling incredibly stressed out is because I don't think we're necessarily always addressing the right thing. Um, I think that really, when it all boils down, it's stress is really about distressing emotion, and that there are, there's the stress that comes from an emotion like, feeling incredibly frustrated or angry about something that's very different than the stress that comes from feeling sad over a loss of something or in turn would be very different than the stress that comes from feeling a sense of embarrassment or shame. And what you would do to regulate the stress or manage the stress in situations that are fueled by one of those three emotions, for instance, that I'm mentioning, would be very different. Right, like what I need to do for myself when I'm feeling angry is very different than what I need to do for myself when I'm feeling embarrassed. Mm. And so I think Agreed. stress management techniques and tools need to get more specific too. And let's talk for a sec about the perspective on our stresses as well, because that plays into mindfulness and the wise mind that you're speaking of, that, you know, when we can learn to have a healthier perspective or maybe change the lens through which the color of the lens through which we're viewing our emotions, not only does it help us feel better, but it pulls the control back into our dominion, which part of what we're upset about is feeling out of control by those emotions. Right. And I, and I think, you know, you're starting to touch on one aspect of what I help a lot of my patients do, which is become aware of what your perspective is, become aware of what interpretations you're making about what's happening in your life, about the stressors that are happening, and really take a look and see if there might be ways that you're filtering those interpretations through your mood or through your emotion that are making them seem bigger, harder to handle, um, that are biased in some way, right? And, and can you then start to challenge those emotion biases? So what I call sort of, I call emotion mind bias, right? So a lot of the terms that I use, I'm a dialectical behavior therapist, and um, a lot of these terms come from DBT. So Marsha Lenahan developed this um, kind of therapy and these terms, emotion mind, wise mind, uh, logic mind, or reasonable mind. And I think that a lot of times um, we live in a place where emotion is guiding the way we think and feel, and we want to be in charge of that, and that would be more wise mind, where we bring in logic and combine it with the information emotions are giving us, and that 
cultivates a sense of wise mind that gives us perspective and balance. It's the best sensitive information we get from emotions because fundamentally emotions are really important, right? They give us a lot of information about what's happening around us and in the world. But then we also have this other part of our brain that, that's really reasonable and rational and logical. And when we combine the two, the information from both, that's wisdom, that's perspective, that's contextualizing things, right? And so being mindful of exactly how we are in emotion mind and how we're filtering information is, um, is one of the keys to then getting to wise mind about something and feeling less stressed out about what we're, whatever it is that's stressing us out in the moment. Um, um, can you talk about the six stages of the cycle of emotion? Because I think this is very interesting. Sure, sure. So every, every emotional experience we have really has six parts. And this is the beginning of being mindful of those situations, right, where we can break it down into these six parts. So everything starts with a triggering event or a prompting event. Something happens. Now, a lot of my patients will say, no, 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 nothing happened. And I'll say, well... <laughs> Sometimes it can even be a prompting event that happens internally. So a memory or a thought that you had can be a prompting event. So can, you know, someone cutting in front of you at line at Starbucks. So, right, it can be, it, it can definitely be something outside, but it can be something internal as well. From there, we have a um, interpretation, what we think about um, what happened and also we'll have changes in our body. So our body will respond. We'll have a body response. And then we'll also have an urge that goes along with that, um, really an urge to do something. And then, the, and then an, uh, an actual action that we might take. And then the last bit is maybe there's an after effect. After we have taken an action, then what happens? And the thing about after effects is that often those after effects become the next triggering event, right? So if I've gotten very upset, someone cut me in line, my body, my heart starts to pound, my, my um, sort of getting hot, I'm thinking in my head, that's not fair, how could she? Then I have the urge to scream at the person and then I do, right? And I yell, hey, you just blocked me or you got in my way. And then the after effect could be that then this person yells back at me and now we're now on to the next event, right? And now, <laughs> so it's yeah. really breaking down that process and knowing then that we can intervene at any one of those points to help ourselves feel better and live better. You know, I, I, I love what you've just described. And it, and it, and it makes me think of uh, a colleague of mine who puts the world in perspective by first world problems or third world problems. Like, what are you experiencing you know, a third world problem is, do you have enough food on your table? A first world problem is that person cut you off in traffic and pissed you off. And that can change one's perspective and, and, and emotion very, very quickly by asking that question. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, there's a bunch of questions that I regularly ask my patients um, to, to ask themselves. Things like, you know, how dangerous is this really? right? Because a lot of times, especially if it's a fear response, it's because we're somehow experiencing the world as dangerous. But, but are you actually in danger in this moment? Like if you don't get your coffee in the next five minutes, is that really dangerous, right? Or, you know, is it something really dangerous? Like I feel like my trust is being broken by this person and that feels dangerous to me. So sometimes the answer is yes, 
And then we regulate from there. And other times the answer is no, and that quickly helps regulate the emotion. I'm going to jump in for a second because we are in danger of the producer cutting us off as we go to break, and I don't want that to happen. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, and my guest today is Dr. Erin Olibo, and she is the author of Wise Mind Living, Master Your Emotions, Transform Your Life, and you can find her at www.erinolibo.com, on Twitter at Dr. Erin Olibo, and on Facebook as well, Dr. Erin Olibo. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. I wanted to fight. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast and share it because sharing is caring and the podcast is free. It's kind. It's legal. It's available 24-7 on iTunes and other purveyors of fine podcasts everywhere. We're talking with Dr. Aaron Olivo and we are talking about the relationship of having a wise mind to help us master our emotions. And Dr. Olivo, prior to the break, we were talking about um, the six stages of the cycle of emotion. And uh, now I want to move on and talk about the big eight emotions that tend to affect people in their lives. Right. So I, I, I find that a lot of um, people don't actually have the labels that they need to describe their emotions, right? Because when I first start to say to people, okay, you're telling me you're feeling overwhelmed, you're telling me you're feeling horribly stressed out, but I want to get underneath that and really figure out what emotion is at the core of that. And then they just look at me blankly like, well, I don't know what you mean about that. So 
I um, have started teaching a lot of my patients about and include in the book um, information about what really boil down to the big eight emotions that you need to understand. Um, we all have a million words for a variety of emotions, right? In the English language, there's a million. But they all can be grouped together into families of emotions. And so the big eight of families of emotions are fear, anger, sadness, shame, jealousy, disgust, love, and happiness. And so there are a million words you could use to describe even fear, let's say. So it could be that I'm um, a little worried, I'm anxious, I'm panicked, right? Those would all be different words we'd use, but they all sort of boil down to that emotion of fear. And you could go through each of them and find a whole bunch of different synonyms for, for, the, for that feeling. But what each of them tend to have in common is that we feel fear when we think that we're in danger. We feel anger when we feel as if a goal of ours has been blocked. Um, someone is taking advantage of us or we're not going to get something that we need. We feel sadness when we have a sense of loss. We feel shame when we're worried that we might get kicked out of the group, whatever that tribe you belong to might be in that moment, that we think we might get kicked out for who we are or what we've done. Um, jealousy, we're afraid something important to us is going to be taken away. Disgust, we think something is um, sort of going to hurt us in some way or we don't like it. Um, and love, when we're feeling valued and respected, we feel love. And then when we're getting more of what we want, we feel happy. So we can sort of really start to boil it down to those things. And really, in, and I break it down in the book as well, each of those six steps of the cycle of emotion, there are common themes that come up for each of these eight categories of emotion that you can learn. So there are common, what I was just mentioning were the common interpretations. Um, there's also common body responses, common urges that go along. For instance, the body urge that goes along with fear would be to hide or avoid the thing that you're afraid of. Um, for anger, it would be to lash out. So there are common urges that we all have and actions that we want to take that are hardwired in with each of those emotions. So sometimes when people can't figure out exactly what emotion they're feeling, they do know what they're thinking or they do know what they want to do. So that's a clue to what you're feeling. And then that, again, is a clue to then where you can intervene to change how you're feeling in any one of those different categories. What I like about what you've just shared is it, um, it's very strategic. You know, you can teach someone to really um, look at these signs from almost a scientific perspective, which distances themselves from the hot zone of the emotion that is bringing the discomfort to then react proactively and diffuse it. And I think that that is spectacular because it's a toolbox based system, you know, to, to, you know, to feel what it is that you're feeling in your body and your mind, and then um, react in a way that is um, very scientific. Right. And it, it actually does. It, it creates sort of both 
emotional, what I would call emotional literacy, right? So it gives you the language and the vocabulary to start to understand emotions. But then um, it also then gives you an observer standpoint that you can use um, to begin to make a you know, problem solve and make a choice about what you're going to do about it. So I actually ask my um, patients to complete what I call a wise mind review. So I'll ask them to pick a situation, especially something that might be um, really, you know, sort of triggering for them and recurring over time. And I'll ask them to sit down and actually write out what each of those six categories might be so that they can look at it on paper and then begin to formulate a plan. So it is scientific in that, in that regard. It's really observing what's happening for you and setting a plan. And then it's reaching into the toolbox. You know, as it becomes required, you've got these very simple tools from what you're describing that help diffuse the situation. We're not, we're, we're not teaching people how to celebrate the good stuff. Most of us know how to do that. Right, exactly. But it is, but we don't all have the skills that we need or the tools to be able to really manage when, we're, when we are feeling really freaked out or really upset about something. And then the more you do it as a regular practice, like I'm saying, I have people do it writing down, it becomes more automatic that you reach for that tool and you can just do it in your mind in the moment on the fly as you go. Let's talk about core beliefs because, the, the, you know, what we believe in our heart of hearts, you know, what we were raised with um, historically um, that runs in the family or in the environments in which we live can dictate how we handle our emotions. Absolutely. And, you know, so thinking to the, to the list of the, the categories of the cycle of emotion, interpretations is one. And that's an area that I work a lot with my patients on. But our interpretations in the moment of a particular trigger are very influenced by a filter that comes even before that moment that really is sort of the way that we view a sort of set way that we view ourselves, other people, and the world. And we call those in cognitive behavioral therapy core beliefs. So core beliefs are really sort of a lens that you look at the world through and you look at yourself and others through. So if you imagine, I usually give the example that if you imagine you have on a, um, a pair of um, blue tinted glasses and someone presented you with a yellow banana, and you look at this and they say, tell me what color this is. Well, you're looking through blue lenses and it looks green. If you don't know that you're looking through that lens, you would say that's green. But if you absolutely already know you're looking through blue lenses, then you can say, well, it's looking, blue to me. It's looking green to me, but I know that it's actually yellow. And so this is the value that knowing about our core beliefs gives us to then being able to see how we might be biased in the way we're thinking about things. And so I think that it's really important for people to understand what some of those core beliefs might be. And so when I ask people to complete those wise mind reviews of things that are troubling to them, we also then over time look for themes of what we think a lot of these interpretations, what we think they mean about me, what I think they mean about other people in general, what I think it means about the world in general. And if, for the most part, you can see that problematic core beliefs, core beliefs that cause us some distressing emotion or make things feel harder, um, tend to fall into a bunch of different categories. 
I'd say the, the most problematic one I deal with a lot with my patients is um, what I would call the core belief of being worthless. So feeling not good enough um, and that then coloring sort of how I, I would interpret a situation going on for me in my life. Mm. Um, so if I, I usually give this little example of I'm walking down the street, I see my friend on the other side, I wave to her and she doesn't wave back. I get to interpret what just happened. And if I interpret that through a core belief of um, worthlessness, then I'm going to think, oh, she doesn't really care about me or, right? But if I'm not using that core belief or if I know that that might be a lens I was using, I could say, oh, hold on a second. She might just not have seen me, <laughs> right? And then right. that <laughs> core belief doesn't get in the way in that way. So I think it's really important for people to sort of really start to examine and look at what are these biased ways that I look at the world and can I start to change them because it will help me feel better in the world. We are about out of time and it, it, this has just flown by. You've given us such insight into the wise mind. I want to once again remind our listeners that the book is Wise Mind Living, Mastering Your Emotions, Transform Your Life, and the author is Dr. Aaron Olivo. And to learn more, you can visit www.aaronolivo.com, on Twitter at Dr. Aaron Olivo, and on Facebook, Dr. Aaron Olivo. This has been an awesome interview. Thank you, Dr. Levo, for sharing um, your passion, your work, very useful um, tools to intervene in the busy uh, domains of the um, the mind and what what we uh, often want to know but are afraid to ask, I think. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Aaron Olivo and Dr. Mario Martinez, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And I want to give a shout out to our producers at TogiNet and at the back end of Harvesting Happiness that make us shine each and every week. You guys are awesome. We love you and are grateful for you. Tune in next week when we carry on the conversation about happiness and why it is so gosh darn important. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on TogiNet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week... Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. 
Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.